0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to episode 80 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, Connor Jayanen. David is not with us today, as he has started studying cats in the wake of Strider being canceled. Hashtag cancel Strider. So for this episode, just me and Connor, but we have the distinct pleasure of being joined again by Dr. William Taylor, who first appeared on the podcast um, in episode 25, um, Horsin' Around with uh, Dr. Taylor. So, uh, Will, thank you so much for coming back on the show. How are you doing this evening? Hey, it's
0: good to be back, fellas. Part of the, I was trying to think back how long ago that was. It's like more than a year ago now, but it really seems like just the other day. So uh, things are going well. It's nice to be back. Yeah, I think it's, it was uh, like...
1: Bring up 2020 is when you're first on?
0: I, I hesitate to ask what uh, what all that stuff was with David, but <laughs> I guess maybe I need to have some episodes I need to catch up on and figure out the details.
2: So, and this is going to be an announcement to all the podcast folks. We are not breaking up. We are busy folks right now. So every time someone doesn't show up, we're going to come up with some sort of ridiculous excuse. So I think Carlton <laughs> was hunting yeah. n- newly not extinct mammoth last time. So... Yeah. So we're not, we're not breaking up. We're, uh, we're, we're, we're doing, uh, interviews, um, and our schedules are busy. So, uh, I will not be on some episodes. David will not be on some episodes. Carlton will not be on some episodes and that's just how it is because life is busy and crazy. So you do not need to catch up. Well,
1: Maybe I mean, get- it, it's, it's valid. Cause I wasn't on the last two episodes and people were DMing me in my Instagram. They're like, is everything okay? Like, are you and the boys all right? Like, did you guys have a fight? And I'm like, no, I just couldn't yeah. make it the past two episodes. Like it's, <laughs> we're fine. You were out elk hunting, right? Yeah, I was out elk yeah. hunting and then antelope hunting before that. And so it was just kind of busy. They left it in capable hands. I listened to the episodes. They were great. In capable
2: hands? Is that what you meant?
1: In, in space <laughs> capable. Not same word. But regardless, Dr. Taylor. So when we last said you on the podcast, we talked about you becoming an archaeologist your time as a football player and undergrad, and research in Mongolia, and you just started. I believe that semester, spring twenty twenty, was the first time you taught a course at CU Boulder. As and are you an, you're an associate professor, correct at the moment, or is no, associate
0: is, is the word they the term that they give you once you've gotten tenure? So uh, I'm an assistant professor.
1: Assistant professor, and so you've taught a couple courses since then. So we really wanted to bring you back on and ask like. One, what was it like to start your academic career as a professor during the COVID-19 pandemic?
0: Yeah, it's been it's been an interesting experience. To be honest, I think the the first thing that that comes to mind is just how fortunate I feel like I was to have settled in here just before all of this hit because I feel like the pandemic was so disruptive for people that were in the shoes that I was in just before I got here, right? Early career scientists that were looking for a tenure track position. A, a lot of us like living in Europe, real isolated type of situation. <laughs> and so I feel kind of like uh, I dodged the bullet by getting here when I did, and kind of thankfully having a lot of the pieces in place here so that everything was okay. But you know, that being said, it was a uh, it was a very strange year to be, you know, moving to a new place, getting to, to learn the ropes of, of what is it like to to be a professor. And then the, the rug gets pulled out from, you know, every aspect of university life and, and all that. So it was definitely a challenge. Carlton, you know, you, you were present f- for some of this, but, you know, basically as a new professor, every time you teach a class, you're Often you're basically also creating class for the first time, and so one of the the big challenges is how do I create consistent expectations while still adapting to what you know students need? You're kind of learning as you go, and then to design like a graduate seminar course that has like a clear trajectory to it, and then two thirds of the way through just yoink all of that out. I think it was uh, it was a wild ride, um, and definitely. You know, not without its ups and downs, but I felt like sort of every month things kind of became a little bit clearer as to how we're going to navigate this. And I'd say I'm pretty lucky here that I have a lot of really supportive senior colleagues that really care a lot as to how, you know, the the newer faculty are are navigating this stuff. So. And and the students are in general real like invested, interested, and sort of adaptive. So, yeah, we survived it, but it wasn't it wasn't a pleasant year
2: <laughs> for sure. So, were you doing a, a mix of in person and online, or
0: in, in Boulder here? We had a certain amount of stuff that was fully mandated online. Right, spring twenty twenty when everything happened, everything was just online for the rest of the semester. When we came back, things were m- mandated online. When I, you know, when I started teaching the the Zoar class, it was mandated online for the first four weeks. And then we were given the option to go back fully in person. So my second course, we did kind of the reverse of the pandemic onset semester where we did like three or four weeks of online only and then in person the rest of the time. It was a it was a pretty uh, interesting sight to see because, you know, we had a class of 15, 20 students, but the university had these really intense spatial restrictions. So the only way we could m- meet them, we basically cleared out the giant paleontology hall with, you know, dinosaurs hanging from the ceiling and triceratops in the corner. And, you know, this enormous space and put everyone in the far distant corner of it. And, like, I'm up here with, like, a face shield and, and stuff and sort of shouting out to the <laughs> folks in the, in the distant corners. But it actually worked really well. It was a blast to, to teach in a closed museum, you know, as opposed to a cramped classroom. So that, that was pretty fun.
1: And so because um, your classes in particular are very hands on. You're the archaeozoologist. You created the archaeozoology lab there at Boulder. I was in your course spring 2020, which was an emerging technologies museum course where we were supposed to learn how to do 3D scanning and do a lot of this modeling. And then halfway through the semester, it was just like, we're done. Go home. And you had to format that. And I th- you did that very well, I think, in terms of kind of seeing how other professors or things that I heard from uh, my students, you transformed that course really nicely. Uh, what course did you teach in the fall of 2020? Because I know you taught Zoark in this last spring, didn't you?
0: Yeah. So I actually, um, so new new faculty are given one semester where, because we're also expected basically to sort of wow everyone with all the research that we get done. We're given like one kind of a get out of jail free card to kind of take a semester that's a research focused semester. And I don't know if it's for better or for worse, but I had taken that for fall of 2020, and I intended to spend about two to three months in China doing some sort of deep dive horse research. Ultimately, I pretty much just spent it all on Zoom here doing teaching and faculty and museum stuff instead. But it was nice to not have to teach that that semester because that was... Probably the highest stress one for most folks that basically had to totally redesign a class to be online only.
2: Carlton, were you teaching or were you assisting in that fall?
1: I TA'd for ANTH 2200 with Dr. Doug Bamforth. ANTH 2200 is my personal, uh, what's the, what's that place you go to before hell or sometime, you know, know what I'm talking about? Purgatory. Yeah. ANTH 2200 is my teaching purgatory. That's the only thing I'm allowed to TA for.
0: Are it's you going to teach more in the spring?
1: Oh, I bet I am. Well, I can only imagine. Uh,
0: I'll be teaching it. Yeah, that'd be <laughs> so, fantastic.
1: So. <laughs> that'd be, it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. And I, and we were fully online. So part of CU's mandate, if like the large classes, so like intro to archeology is usually like a hundred something students. Those classes were fully online. So I haven't had to teach in person since the fall of 2019 Because the spring of 2020, I was Will's archaeozoology lab manager, so I haven't been in a classroom in front of a
2: PowerPoint in two years. That's it's gonna if you if you choose the professor route, it's probably going to be something you're gonna have to (laughs) reckon with at some point.
1: (laughs) Can't keep doing online forever, exactly. (laughs) Part of you coming in to to see Boulder, right? You are it's not dual listed, but you're you're part of the museum studies program in anthropology and you're also in the anthropology department part of you coming in was to create a new exhibit at the university of colorado museum of natural history that's the title i always get it confused because there's denver museum of nature and science and that doesn't get those mixed up a little bit how did covid change the planning and project of your exhibit in the, within the museum
0: yeah this was also an interesting aspect of of uh My first year at CU, when I arrived, we we kind of have like a a rotating small exhibit that's just kind of a focus of like, what's new? What are people researching? And always loved museums and and just so excited to finally have a sort of a sandbox to work here with some actual exhibit development stuff. I kind of got carried away with it, right? In terms of taking what was a tiny little thing and making it like a a much bigger exhibit focused on telling the story of people and horses in North America. And basically we got all the way done with content development and we're at the point of getting ready to do install stuff when the pandemic hit. And, you know, so, and and this probably applies to anyone who is doing any exhibit stuff, both either at our museum or, or anywhere else. We very rapidly as a collective had to scramble to figure out how do we do what we had planned to do? How do we serve our mission? You know, at our museum, our mission is like super multifaceted. Not only are we do we have like a grad program where we've got all these emerging, you know, young museum professionals that are getting their high-level training, but we also have researchers coming in to study collections, right? We have undergrads. Uh, working in the museum or doing research stuff, using the collections for, for class stuff. And we have like K-12 and general public outreach stuff, right? We have 10, 11 year old girls that anticipate spending two to three days in the museum every week during fall and spring semesters, you know? So we pretty much everybody had to figure out, Oh my gosh, like how do we do some or all of this? How do we change what we're doing? So that we can do this without people in the building, and uh, it was a pretty widespread pivot. And you know, some of it was actually super successful and probably changed the way our museum worked permanently in many ways. Actually, Carlton was a part of that in terms of we started developing like a, a podcast, we were taking people into kind of long format interviews with some of our curators, and yeah, folks should. Check that out if you're interested in things called Museum Unlocked. That, that was kind of cool. And, and we But basically, every, uh, every person at the museum was sort of uh, rapidly developing new ways that we could make that switch. And so, um, yeah, the horse exhibit was one example of how that played out. So we ended up doing a ton of 3D scanning and digitization of the objects that we had wanted to highlight and kind of trying to build a uh, web-based digital exhibit that could do a few things more than just your average 2d photos one of the things that that stimulated us to do was add some video interviews that would have been harder to get right in a physical exhibit and carlton actually led some of those uh long format interviews that are providing you know perspectives from from some tribal historic preservation officers in the Great Plains and the Southwest and ultimately I think everyone came out of that and we were able to do a full fully bilingual, right, in Spanish and English. And everyone came out of that thinking like, okay, actually the, well, it was awful to totally switch this <laughs> in the middle of doing it and it was a lot of work. But we ended up serving a different audience as well, right. And making it available in a way that some of our stuff might not have been available in, in the old paradigm. So that's sort of how it went in most aspects of museum work over the last year or two, sort of a wild scramble. Um, but in the process, I think we gave ourselves, uh, some new tools in our toolkit about like how we can serve the different folks that, are sort of our constituents.
2: Do you anticipate continuing on that same sort of trajectory in the future and continue to adapt to post-pandemic life as well?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, we were, you know, the, the funny part is like we were teaching, you know, this emerging technologies class. There was a narrative and an understanding, right, that this is the direction that museums are shifting, like it or not. Right, I just think it's sort of forced our hand to really shift our infrastructure and invest in that in a more rapid way. you know universities, museums, these institutions are like sort of there's an inertia to it, right because especially a museum, our job is literally to like ensure nothing changes, right We're supposed to like protect the past and things that are hundreds of years old or or whatever, and so it can. In that aspect, I think there was definitely a silver lining because I do think we were headed here regardless, and we're now real prepared to do that in a way that we weren't before. It just was kind of a bumpy, (laughs) bumpy road there.
1: Yeah, it was like it was interesting because like the readings that Will had us go through were like, how do you project the museum's knowledge base outside of the physical walls? Like, how do you get different demographics involved? And then so I remember being in a couple of meetings where there, where the museum was like, well, how do we get stuff out? And I was like, well, I read this article that Dr. Taylor assigned and this is how they did it out in like Czechoslovakia uh-huh. or something <laughs> like that. So like all the students were already like in the mindset of like, oh, well, we have all these case studies and examples to pull from to do a lot of this stuff. So it was kind of. Yeah, the, I, I never realized that. I don't know if it's irony, but I, yeah, I didn't realize kind of how that was, how that played out until you just- got It got a lot more serious than it <laughs>
0: might have seemed in January. It, got, <laughs> so, it,
1: it went from theoretical to like practical within. Yeah, yeah your,
2: your five to 10-year plan is now like a two-month plan to, yeah, to get exactly. all that stuff together. <laughs> On that note, I think we are going to end this first segment. Chris Webster is going to- talk to you about some awesome things. So we'll catch you on the next segment.
1: Welcome back to episode 80 of a life and ruins podcast. 80 was my number back in football. Fun fact, not relevant to the slightest, but whatever. Uh, I kept thinking about that. I think Sunday this is going to be named <laughs> Carlson's football number with, with, with,
2: with Williams, with Taylor.
1: Uh, last time that we had you on, Dr. Taylor, we, we briefly talked about the um, Leahy horse, the project that you're doing with that archaeological specimen. Could you recap what the Leahy horse project is and why that was significant in, in your research?
0: Yeah, so uh, I think we talked a little bit last time, right, that like one of the main focuses of our ongoing work, right, is trying to use archaeozoology to see what we can learn about the story of the horse here in, in North America. And, you know, one of the first things that folks said, and it became a kind of refrain as we got started is, I'm not sure that the archaeology is there for you to do much with it. Right. Like it's, I'm just not aware of, you know, folks that really knew their stuff. uh, Oftentimes you would still get comments. Like "I, I just don't think there are that many horses out there. Right. So this horse in particular came to our attention through a New York times article about an ice age horse found in someone's backyard, kind of in the salt lake, greater salt lake, area, right? And it's a horse, complete horse that was found in these kind of sandy Pleistocene lake deposits. And because of that, right, it it made a lot of headlines as, wow, this beautiful horse. But one of the things that jumped out to me and my colleagues as we were reading it is they mentioned that the horse was old and that it had arthritis, which... It's not unheard of in a wild animal, but if you just think about the basic mechanics of, of life as a wilder before, it's like in general, when we encounter these things, they tend to be pretty healthy. They tend to not be particularly old. And you certainly would not expect a mobility impairment type of problem on an old animal making it into too many paleontological deposits, right? Because there's just too much, too many natural processes that remove some animal like that from uh, from the pool. So that kind of raised some eyebrows and we thought that we should have a look, right? And so we arranged a research visit in collaboration with a, a lot of the, you know, I have some partners at University of Utah, some partners, you know, with paleontologists that that work in the area and kind of a whole group of us went down and had a look and the very first thing that we saw as we're going through the skeletal collections here are these really really characteristic uh, fractures to the lower back which you really don't find very often at all in archaeological assemblages but when you do where are they most common? It's the first millennium BC, when people were horse riding without a saddle. And this is the area of the lower back that bears most of the burden from a rider's sort of butt bouncing up and down uh, repeatedly on a pretty sensitive part of the horse's anatomy. So we, we thought, oh boy, I think we have, we have a domestic horse here and something has, has gone wrong in the pipeline. Well, of course, you know many folks stepped forward with "aha," like the the great Mormon horse, right? There was a, a tendency for folks to really want to put this in that bin, and we really had to. I mean, I was, of course, like, no, I, I really, I don't think so. But we had to prove it, right? And so we started going into the context a little deeper. And one of the things we noticed as we went back through, like the original you know, videos of the horses discovering stuff will look like actually there's a pit carved into this Pleistocene deposit that folks actually even sort of identified and talked about when it was coming out and, and ultimately decided, okay, we don't think this is a, a pit. Everyone knows that stratigraphy can be more of an art than a science sometimes. And <laughs> but as we were going through the collection, I also pulled out a bag that came from the from the back dirt, basically that has a you know flaked piece of chip in there, right? And so we started to, to think, okay, there's really a emerging strong argument here that we're looking at at a misclassified specimen of indigenous cultural heritage from the kind of Salt Lake region, and ultimately we decided that because we had this complete specimen and because there was so much sort of back and forth over demonstrating what this horse actually was. We hit it with as many different methods as we could. DNA to establish that this was, you know, equus cabalis, a domestic horse. That DNA also told us that, that it was a female horse. So there are other ways you can find this out osteologically, but those parts of the skeleton were, were not really present or well-preserved for us. And so for us, that tells us something important that this is an old female animal. It's the kind of animal that you might keep even if they had a severe arthritis or mobility impairment for one reason, and that would be if you're breeding them, right? We did some some stable isotopes and strontium isotopes help us identify that this horse sort of lived its life locally. And then we, we pulled out all the different clues that we could from the skeleton in terms of what we could learn about how the animal was kept, whether it was ridden, and ultimately we kind of got this, ultimately it's just one horse, but what we tried to do with this horse is point out the potential of this approach for the rest of the archaeological record as well. And one of the first things, right, that jumps out is that how much of that uh, sort of record of indigenous heritage of horses has gone in the wrong bin whether it be because we have such a rich record of fossil horses, or whether it be in other cases, right? I know that many times archaeologists might encounter one or two horse bones, sometimes even a whole horse, but they come in with an assumption that this is a dump, but that they come in thinking of the horse as a Western Euro-American kind of animal. And oftentimes I've seen cases where folks might've encountered an entire horse and simply dismissed its relevance to the archaeological site as something intrusive or something associated with 20th century ranchers or, or something like this. Not all the time, but these are processes, I think, that have really shaped this problem. And I think that this paper kind of engaged with that a little bit to show us, hey, I think there actually might be a lot more archaeological basis for this kind of thing and if we do archaeology, maybe we can tease out some of the biased assumptions or some of the misclassification that might have stripped away those associations.
2: I think when I was at a – and I think you know Cassie Thornhill, who did yeah. her master's thesis up in Wyoming, and we had that conversation over beers, as you do, about this stuff, because you, there's, there's so many ways that you could miss horses in the archaeology archaeological record i mean i think at least in north america like you said you highlighted like um, oh it's a modern someone dumped their horse out of that thing or it's a nice or it's a nice age horse you know something like that or just not being able to identify horse remains versus cow something like that you know not not really thinking about it it's cool to hear about this doing all these tests and and studying it because that's it's super interesting and it you can really like you said you can really get these really personal almost personal kind of things about this horse and yeah no i just it's, it's super cool so
0: yeah i think that's that's one of the important pieces here is even if you don't have i mean right as when we're in grad school everybody's uh harping on sample size all the time and and you know archaeologists are notorious for wanting to do a bunch of statistics when they probably shouldn't but um the truth is especially with a, something like a domestic animal where the remains of that animal are chronicling a lifetime of intimate interactions with humans, you don't need uh, sometimes any more than a small handful of specimens to tell an incredibly rich story, right? And I think that's one thing that distinguishes maybe the study animal domestication a little bit from other kinds of zooarchaeology is that we really can be totally happy with a deep story told in three or four data points that can still totally reshape the way we think about a a big topic. And I think horses are a great example. You know, Cassidy has done some really great work with that. And that's one of a small handful of similar sites where all of a sudden we're getting all kinds of information into that human horse story. And there may not be 15 such sites in the state of Wyoming but That one, right? And uh, Black's Fork, that's still telling a big piece of story that might not be showing up elsewhere. So, yeah, so that's kind of our perspective. We're sort of taking a wide lens. And then every time we have a chance to do a deep dive, right? We're trying to take that chance.
1: And, and moving off of that, I mean, there's kind of a tell using a small sample size to tell a huge story. There is that horse skeleton out of kansas that you've been looking at and i don't know you haven't published on that right not yet
0: there'll, there'll be something at the plains conference i can talk about this we have a publication that should be sent to the you know to the research gods here sometime in the next month or two and so i can definitely talk about it because it's something that you've also been pretty significantly involved in right and i think it's nice as a sort of a a reflection of the lehigh story right because the broad strokes of it are extremely similar in the sense that this is a just a, a head right it's a cranium and manible man of a horse that was found on the banks of a river right in the middle of lawrence kansas in 1910 1911 and the paleontologist who came across it said like aha Right? We have this beautiful, and this is a well-known Pleistocene fossil locality, right? So you see how the logic works. It's like, we know this is a Pleistocene age deposit. N- next door, we found a you know, a bison femur or something. So, and it literally became uh, a type specimen for a new species of horse that was named after the city of Lawrence, Kansas, Equus Laurentius. And it stayed that way for exactly 100 years until a team of uh, really, really expert paleontologists came along and were kind of like, we came in and looked at the type specimen for equus laurentius and we're pretty sure this is a domestic horse. And they even went so far as the radiocarbon data and they were, (laughs) you know, came away being like, sorry guys, but (laughs) no equus laurentius anymore or at least not from this specimen. Um, but we had a different set of questions from from that, which is, okay, this is an immaculately preserved horse here. Uh, what's the story behind it? Because the radiocarbon dates associated with it in this 2010 paper are really, I mean, they're really early. They're essentially mid, early to mid-17th century dates. Again, it's one of these situations where we we poked in our heads in to see what else could be learned from the skeleton, right? And I think that's another example where there was just, uh, I'm sure that we didn't capture all the things that could be learned, but just as an example from the osteology, I think we can actually reconstruct the kind of bit that it was controlled with. And uh, there are a number of reasons which I won't get into too much here, but if you're at the Plains Conference, Swing by, and I can show you on a poster. Um, but a very unique kind of bit was in use. You know, uh, metal bridal equipment was in use in the 17th century, and it worked in a pretty s- specific way that has osteological implications. But once again, right, the question becomes: Have we found the remains of Coronado's expedition into Kansas? Right, and it all every time you're the very first thing out of them certain demographics mouths will be like, oh my God, this is a Spanish horse. So we did other things to try to understand that relationship further. And the most important and interesting piece, right, is that through the sequential sampling of stable isotopes, I think we can show pretty clearly that this horse was fed corn in the winters, right? And again, once again, we seem to have this local signature. So in terms of the mobility and that the other isotopes there and so yeah I think we now have a, a specimen that started off in the wrong bin and came back to tell us hey the there is a really really rich amount of detail about essentially all these innovations in indigenous horse pastoralism right the integration of well we know we can tell their horse riding was happening right integration into an existing framework with uh, in terms of maize right as a uh, local domestic crop being used, you know, to fodder, and the timing here might suggest that, you know, these religious missionaries at 1700 who were going around noting things in their journal about when people did or didn't have horses may not have appropriately captured the antiquity of that relationship, right? Which may not be surprising to a lot of folks, but in, in general, that's actually the basis for most of our chronology about when we think about people having horses in in the Western US in particular. It's kind of a proxy map of when did the first white person with a notebook show up, right? So.
1: <laughs> and so Lawrence is in easternish Kansas, right? Like it's where the University of Kansas is. It's yeah, like-
0: I don't know where Kansans like to draw the line there, but it's like somewhere central eastern Yeah.
1: But the, the isotope analysis wasn't like last time I checked wasn't from that part of Kansas though. Right. It was from a different geographic area.
0: No. So, I mean, you might not have seen all of our isotope analysis. Maybe, maybe Maybe not. I just remember that. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's relatively, that's sort of the final piece of this puzzle. And, And I think, uh, it's one thing that's hard always when you're doing isotope analysis is to get the right reference databases and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think I think we've zeroed in on, on the okay. right
1: As I remember I think last time I talked, there was talk of it possibly coming from like central Nebraska, northern Kansas.
0: Yeah, we, that, that piece of the narrative isn't probably totally hammered out yet, so okay. probably that's something that we should sit down and do and in chat, a, about. chat with someone, an isotopes, one of the isotopes authors here and see, see what we can sort out. Because
1: I got really excited at the prospect of it being a Pawnee horse being traded to the Otoes at some point in time.
0: Well, I think that's something that's definitely on the radar here. So I think basically we have to, we have to be cautious with how much detail we go into an isotope narrative, unless we're going to get out with our sampling kit and sample every stream and every plant, <laughs> you know between,
1: <laughs> between lawrence and bismarck yeah fair enough I think, yeah
2: i think i think we need to get a petition to name the horse lawrence <laughs> because they didn't get the species name you know
0: <laughs> yeah i'm not sure that uh that would go over particularly oh, yeah. well in <laughs> to add Let's find another way to put some sort of a European name on this source <laughs> of the research that now shows us has been misclassified for more than a century. <laughs>
2: This is, this is why you're a professor and this and why I run a <laughs> podcast. On that note, we will uh, end this segment. This is episode 80 of Life and Ruins podcast. We are talking with Dr. William Taylor, and we'll catch you in the third segment.
1: And welcome back to episode 80 of Life and Roots podcast I'm here with Dr. Taylor. Uh, so going back uh, across the ocean to some of the research that we talked about on the last episode, your roots in Central Asia and Mongolia and looking at horse domestication, like the earliest forms of horse domestication around the globe, you are involved in a research project at the Botai site. And that, that's not in Mongolia, right? Or is it Mongolia?
0: <laughs> no. So it's not, it's not in Mongolia. It is in <laughs> the great nation of Kazakhstan. I also have not done any research there. What's happened here is that the longer that I've worked in Asia, with most of my work being primarily in Mongolia and China the deeper that I've become engaged with the big picture of horse domestication, right? And ultimately, the study of horses and horse domestication has come a long way in 50 years. It is one of the most purely archaeozoological problems in archaeology, right? And the reason for that is that almost no artifact types really trace those incipient, earliest stages of of human horse relations other than horse bones themselves, right? So, from day one, the hypothesis about how do we understand, uh, how do we study horse domestication has really been centered around how do we trace human activity in the equine skeleton, right? So, This is a question where there's been back and forth for decades and basically as the methods have emerged, the answer has changed sometimes every few years. So when people first started thinking about how we can identify human activity on horses, it was purely focused on on the teeth and one tooth in particular, right? The second premolar of the horse, something called bit wear. Scholars identified first in the 70s and then through the 80s and 90s that, hey, in certain conditions, looks like this tooth, which is the first of the big cheek teeth of the horses that might interact with anything in its mouth. This tooth actually occasionally seems to have a very unique kind of damage to it, right, which has to be caused by human activity. So if we find this in the archaeological record, boom, we've got horse domestication. The problem, right, is that context is still needed, right? And so what first happened was we found, I say we, I was like still in diapers at this point, found a tooth in the steppes of the Ukraine, which had bitware and which based on stratigraphy seemed to be like from like three or 4,000 BC. And it was like, whoa, the first horse riding is 6,000 years ago in the steppes of Ukraine. And it stayed that way for probably a decade. A uh, site so called Derevka as like the the sort of the poster child for, yep, this is where it started. And it literally was based on the tooth, one tooth, right? Well, eventually there was enough of a kind of a back and forth in this that somebody said, well, we should radiocarbon date that. And oops, this tooth is from about 800 BC and it was like accidentally, like maybe there was a pit buried in this site, right? So, okay. And then all of a sudden the debate becomes untethered again and people start saying, well, this part of Asia is the earliest. And this part of Asia is the earliest. And it's sort of untethered the question again. And the second locus that people finally settled on is a place called Botai in Northern Kazakhstan. And in the interim, People had started to develop some newer techniques for tracing damage to horse dentition that might be linked to people. And the new approach seems to be slightly more reliable than the problems of the first approach, right? And looks like these bow tie teeth have this kind of damage. Not a lot of the bow tie teeth, but some of them seem to have a, a pretty characteristic Damage pattern, which, based on what we knew in two thousand eight nine, was like leading techniques for linking human behavior to the, the horse guilt. So that story has sort of been the status quo for more than ten years now. Not a long time, really, when you think about how long it takes to publish something. How long? ideas sort of then disseminate out into the wider world. In the interim over the last 10 years, what we've been able to do with other archeological analyses has also just totally ballooned to the point where ancient DNA gave us the ability to reconstruct the whole nuclear genome from something like a tooth or a little piece of, you know, petrosal bone or something. So a few years ago that All the horses from that site were studied, and they discovered, oops, this is actually not the same species as domestic horse. So, the outcome of that narrative was we have a second failed horse domestication event that preceded the eventual domestication of the horse. That analysis, really jarred something loose for me, where I, I just started to see that, think that, okay, I don't really think the pieces are all fitting here, because I know what's called the Przewalski's horse. It's been reintroduced to Mongolia. I've spent time out on these reserves. There are some really compelling arguments as to why the Przewalski horse, you know, has never been domesticated or, you know, managed as a domestic animal by Mongolians in several thousand years of, of Mongolian history, right? And I started to go back through the the logic of those original debates which preceded everyone agreeing on Botai. And it turns out that there are a number of really big, what I would call red flags, right? One of them being some of the horses at Botai have literal like arrowhead harpoons wedged in their ribs, right? Another red flag is that we, in every pastoral assemblage I've ever encountered in Eurasia, there's a predictable pattern of culling of particular demographics of horses, which you do to manage a breeding herd, right? You, you cull young males and you cull older females. We actually we find the exact same pattern repeating itself at Black's Fork and Lehigh as well, right? It's a, almost a universal, because it's very anchored in horse biology, that to manage a herd of domestic horses, you you choose certain demographics. Well, crazily enough, Botai is the only domestic horse associated site that I've ever encountered where it's a 50-50 split male female, and it doesn't have any of this patterning which is otherwise universal to the archaeological record of horses. So these are all kind of things that got us squinting a little bit. At Well, maybe it's worth a second look at the evidence for horse transport at Bowtie. So, I started talking about the tooth. Ultimately, the the argument for horse riding and horse transport at Bowtie comes down to one tooth in particular, and then a couple of other kind of supplementary bits and pieces there, in which it looks like there's very unique damage to this tooth. I started talking with a friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Christina Baron Ortiz, who is the world expert on developmental defects in Ice Age horses, right? Especially teeth. And I started, sh- you know, showing her some of this evidence and talking through. And in our discussions, we realized that the unique patterns that were being put forward as the Uh, basis for here's human activity at Botai, shared a lot of characteristics with things that she actually was very familiar with in a huge database of wild horse remains from this continent, from North America. And so what our study did, we didn't do anything one way or the other with Botai, right? We did a deep dive into the prevalence of some of these natural developmental or nutritional or otherwise kind of uh, happenstance defects that occur in wild horses. And we discussed what the implications of those defects were for our interpretation of other sites like Botai. And the results are not very encouraging for your belief in the strength of the Botai analysis, right? They raise a lot of questions about whether things like enamel hypoplasia right or natural variation in the shape of teeth can and do produce things that are essentially perfectly comparable in wild specimens and that's what we found and we said based on our analysis you're going to have to revisit this tooth and do some follow-ups you know follow-up analysis do a thin section kind of dive a little deeper here if we're going to now base our whole understanding on one tooth or, or a very small handful of isolated specimens. So I think we built a really strong scientific argument not to dismiss Baltai as relevant to the center of horse domestication, but to prompt people to go back and take another look, right? And the final thing that we did, which I think generated a lot of controversy is we pointed out right that we now have in 2021 we don't have to focus on a single tooth anymore or a particular you know smoking gun if you will we have a whole host of multiplicity of methods right ranging from the biomolecular right to the osteological and any best practices now would be using all of those not just to say yes or no on, on horse domestication at all tie but if it was domestication how were folks using these horses were they riding them were they pulling carts you know uh what were all the were they taking care of their health all these things and none of this all this stuff has been totally set aside at botai and and not revisited and it's time i think one way or the other for us to take our toolkit and go back there and unfortunately this uh, statement was not particularly well received. Right? It, it caused a huge controversy and, and quite a lot of backlash which I'm probably not going to get into here at this particular time, but which I think has unfortunately distracted from the, the scientific core of the issue. So I would just encourage folks that are listening and interested in this go back and read the original paper and read our response because i think what's needed now is not that i think well oh, our papers is, is somehow solved all the answers but i think it's time for some dialogue and i i think that the paper hopefully starts that a little bit even if it was not a not a pleasant start
2: <laughs> i think it's an important point that we have assumptions or we have things that we think are true these models of things and as we get new technology we we should be there to reevaluate them we should be able to ask these questions in any sort of format i think yeah as as we gain more or different ways to analyze stuff it's important to go back and ask these questions i know it's yeah and
0: one of the things that's kind of crazy is that the the world of biomolecular archaeology right it's it's a hardcore laboratory science stuff and they generate you know billions of data points and all this complicated stuff but they're building their models based on whatever archaeologists tell them in some ways right and it might be right that our archaeological hypotheses was a little bit cobbled together from whatever we had available because that's how we do it right but unfortunately it means that as the archaeologists we can never be too confident in our own ideas right we we have to try to poke holes in them and 10 years later be like, oh yeah, that was what it looked like to me. But I see now that with the new, you know, so it, it requires a lot of vigilance on our part because it doesn't matter how brilliant of a molecular scientist might be. They actually, they still can't easily navigate our world. You know, there's a lot of things that we have cut marks, spiral fractures, you know, these These are just a a completely different language to even the most brilliant geneticists. So we have to be transparent about our sources of uncertainty.
1: Excellent. I think that's a a good place to, to wrap up. So you, had a call to action, Dr. Taylor, to um, read the paper. So, I mean, here's a good chance, you know, before we end the show, what are a couple sources, one to three books, articles, videos that you would recommend for anyone interested in um, animal or or horse domestication or or even your recent publications, if they're curious about your research?
0: Yeah. So, I think some some things that would be good to check out on the basis of our chat today, check out the Lehigh horse paper. That one is, everything I'm going to say here is totally open access. You should be able to find it online without too much trouble. I think it would also make sense, obviously, to, to dive into this rethinking the evidence for early horse domestication at Botai. Um, and in that paper, you can also find a link to the original earliest horse harnessing and milking paper from 2009 that, that is kind of a in response to. I'm going to give two more things, even though that's one more than you asked for. Uh, one is there's a new, a really great paper out um, just this last week by librato et al. the origins and spread of domestic horses from the western Eurasian steppes. That's a really multidisciplinary mega study with a lot of important implications. You'll see as you read through that, there's a lot of <laughs> there are a lot of things unresolved here about the botai question and everything else. But it really interesting application of, of some of this new techniques. And then the final thing is uh, if you want to know about Mongolia and chariots we just had a paper come out in antiquity that I think hopefully is a little less controversial than any of these other things, but kind of shows the way that you can use, you know, osteology, something like dentition, maybe to even learn in, in some interesting detail, something like the difference between riding or, or pulling chariots, how people were used, what did chariots and horses mean in the, you know, the life of, of Mongolia in the Bronze Age? I think that's um also one probably useful to check out
2: cool well th- thank you for passing those along and where can i listeners find you on um social media
0: yeah all right so the hottest read these days is probably twitter right which is wtt underscore taylor on twitter we also have a more muted presence on at cu archeology on facebook and instagram the instagram page has got a few cobwebs up since Carlton abandoned that role as our lab manager, but it does still get some interesting posts once in a while, then on Facebook, you know, normally we share research articles and, and that sort of thing. So I,
1: I didn't abandon it. I was no longer. Yeah, you're, a, not. Well, you're, not <laughs> you're not getting
0: paid anymore either. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I, yeah, like, I didn't
1: just leave you with that. Like I didn't, you, you didn't rehire <laughs> this, me. Like,
0: <laughs> my I really have to force myself to do social media. It's not, it's not a, a natural gift for me the way it is for, for Carlton. So it, it is a little dustier than it used to be. But, <laughs> I can Still come back follow. on a contract basis. Well, excellent.
1: We just interviewed uh, Dr. William Taylor. You can find him on uh, Twitter at WDT underscore Taylor, as well as the CU Archaeozoology Lab on Instagram and Facebook. And you have that Facebook page, Horses and Domestication Society. Uh, that's another,
0: that one's actually a little, even a little bit more active. Horses and Human Societies on Facebook.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Further reminder. Excellent. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And please be sure to rate the podcast and provide us with feedback on whatever platform you are on. We love to hear from you. Email us at a life and ruins podcast at gmail.com. Yell at us on any sort of social media stuff. Make sure and put Carlton's name in there so he understands it's for him. Yeah, um, don't
1: don't yeah. send message to Ethnosynology. <laughs> like we love David in the work, but don't talk don't talk to Ethnosynology about the Life Ruins podcast. We have handles you can talk to us.
2: Yeah, but please talk to us, uh, engage with us. We we love talking to you, um, and we love you, Caleb Wilch. <laughs> and
1: with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a life in ruins podcast. You can follow us on
2: Instagram and Facebook at a life in ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a life in ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So uh, who do ponies call when they're possessed by demons? I don't know. An ex horseist. Oh boy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I might be an ex-horses. That's something I can put on a, on a
1: business
0: <laughs> price. <laughs> Excellent. And with that, we
1: are out.
2: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland,